Go turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to open up, do a little bit of a brief recap, and then work our way through uh, points two through four. All right, we are considering 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The subtitle is Entrance into the Kingdom of God. And the way we talked about this on Tuesday is that I actually encourage you to take up the idea of entering into the kingdom uh, from a tandem of soteriology or salvation or entrance by the uh, benefits of evangelism reaching you and calling you into the kingdom on a spiritual level by faith and then also the kingdom of God being something that is fully and permanently and totally realized on the last day when Christ returns and we experience the totality of our salvation in what we call glorification. So we can say justification is the prerequisite for entrance in the kingdom, into the kingdom on a spiritual level, which is for you and me sanctification. Sanctification ultimately will result in glorification. That glorification is the consummation of our salvation when Jesus comes. So if you can hold a category of three, justification prepares you to enter, sanctification brings you in, glorification consummates your experience of grace that God promises you that you and I will be with him for all, forever, for all eternity in the renewed kingdom of God. Some of that we're going to be talking about. What we talked about um, on Tuesday was the idea that the way Paul frames, the apostle frames chapter 10 is around helping us to avoid agnosticism. Do you guys remember that? He said, I would that you be not what? Ignorant. And that is the term from which we can actually construct it in the English agnostic to not know, to not know. And we looked at length. to some degree around the dangers of not knowing, and we'll deal with that when we get into application today. I think what I started off by saying was it is not good to not know. It is not good to be ignorant. It's certainly not good to be willingly ignorant. And that's going to be one of the questions I'm going to raise for our Q&A. Why would a person be predisposed to ignorance as a position uh, for him or herself in relationship to things so important as their eternity. Why would a person vow or vouch or position themselves or take a stance of agnosticism and, and, and view it as a virtue in relationship to the exceedingly great danger of them being wrong? Right? Why would they do that? But that's what I wanted to drill down into because... You and I can be agnostic at very temporal and limited and narrow levels in very particular categories of life, depending upon the way that subject matter confronts us or how we perceive it. Agnosticism can be a very um, practical tool, if you will, uh, in areas of your life, like the colloquialism that you know, uh, ignorance of the law is no what? Excuse. But there are people that will cop that kind of plea under many different conditions. I did not what? I didn't know. Right. And what the apostle has done all through the epistles is warn us not to be people that did not know. And and I want to just make sure that we're thinking that through, because if as believers, 
and that term is important, pistuo, pistis, people having faith, men and women having faith, you and I, by faith, by the active process of faithing or believing, we can uh, assure ourselves in our walk with God that we do not have to succumb to agnosticism as a safe and secure place when it comes to the present and the future and certainly to eternity. God calling you and I to believe is calling you and I to an engagement with his word on a propositional level, which also means that God fully sees his word as sufficient to broadly inform you and I in such a way as that we do not fail to obtain the kingdom that God is calling us to. So he will give us enough information, enough data, enough truth that upon us hearing it, all that is required of us is to submit to its claims, uh, believe uh, God's truth, Uh, realize and lean into what God has to say as the grounds of our hope for salvation. Needless to say, that's a process. So I want you to embrace that too. It is not a one-time punctiliar event. Believing is a process. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, please. I'm going to kind of lay the foundation with you on this. Also, if we we understand this Hebrew triadism, the Hebrew triadism, uh, particularly within the framework of categories, the uh, past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. If we understand the Hebrew triadism of the past, present, and future, we can understand how at times God will speak about things as having a past. Like you were born again. That's a past tense, Aries tense. You are growing in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. That's present tense. You will come into full maturity one day. That's future tense. Under the term soter or uh, uh, sozza, salvation, the Bible says we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Now, those that triad of categories is necessary to keep in mind because sometimes in the context of Scripture, salvation is talking about what God did for you in Christ. Salvation is sometimes talking about what God is doing in you by his spirit. And then sometimes salvation is talking about what God will do when he rescues you and I from this present evil world when he returns again. That too is a salvation. Did that make some sense? That triad will show up in different doctrinal subject matters and you and I will need to know how to hold those categories so that we don't miss the benefit of that triad. Now notice what Uh, This text says, now the just shall live by what? But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Verse 39. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition or destruction, but of them that what? Believe to the saving of the soul. So that belief is not just a one-time event. It's a process that consummates, consummates in our soul being saved. We believe unto the saving of our soul. I like it the way Jesus said it in Matthew 24. Haven't quoted it in a long time. Maybe it's verse 13, Matthew 24, 13. He that endures to the end, the same shall be what? Saved. There it is. At this point, what we mean by he that endures to the end is really the end of our life, the end of our earthly journey, right? So that salvation is not talking about what happens at conversion. It's talking about 
conversion leading to us breathing our last breath and dying in Christ so that we are rescued from uh, the trial of being a believer in this world. So I quote those verses because I want to now move into what we already began to do with and deal with and not lose a whole lot of time. The reason that Paul picks up in verse one, two, three and four with this language of do not be ignorant, brethren, is because of a profound experience that the nation of Israel went through. A profound, massive, national, gargantuan experience collectively. This wasn't like what one person went through and then went around telling other people about it. This is all 1.3 million people, men, women, children, old folk, young folk, and you and I can imagine babies in the womb. They walked out that night on Abib 1 of what God called, this is the beginning of the new year for you as they came out on Passover to leave Egypt and start a new life. They all did it together. You can imagine the epigenetical influence of that on the children as they are walking through the wilderness, as they are experiencing what it was like to be in Egypt, but now making their journey. And obviously you would agree with me for the children. And you're going to see this on Sunday. This was a jazz because like kids don't have the same kind of jacked up cynical mentality that we do. Would you agree with that? Right now, as a rule, they don't unless you teach them that like you can teach your kids to be cynical. Why am I veering down that path? Right. Because we are very culturally influenced. So if your kids see you operating out of an optimistic faith, there's a good possibility that they're going to adopt some of that as well, particularly if they see that it is productive on an emotional, practical level. Conversely, if your children see you operating out of a pessimism or a negativity, that will be patternistic in their life. Would you agree? It will be passed on to them as an inheritance because it's called what? Culture. Culture is called cultivating. You can cultivate in people's lives a disorientation or what we might also call a a demotivational attitude. If you and I are not walking in a kind of positive, optimistic faith headed towards where we're going to go. And if your children recognize that you're believing God for the future, then they're going to lean into that under the wind of your journey until it's their turn. They're going to lean into that wind because your your movement forward towards God makes it easy for them to move forward towards God until it's their turn. Does that make some sense? It's extremely important for you to get that. That's the blessing of being a parent over the children. And that is the blessing of the children being under the parent. Because as you know, this is for somebody, as you know, when once we come up from under our parents' guardianship, we feel a kind of weight of personal responsibility, don't we? When once we come up from under the um, guardianship of our parents, it's kind of like, okay, now I'm on my own. I got to make this thing work for me. Well, Israel did not have to do that per capita. That is individually. All 1.3 of them collectively made their way all the way up to the shores of um, of Canaan, did they not? Because we're there now in our text, Numbers chapter 13. We're there. The whole group is there. And they, they've been parked there now for a minute while God is arguing with them for unbelief. And you can imagine the children going, what's going on? I, I thought we were going to go into our new house. This is our home. What? what? 
right? And so as you guys are going to see on Sunday, what God is going to do is say, you old folks are dying in the wilderness. You children will make it in because God is no respecter of persons. All right, so this is kind of the way the language is going. And be ready when we get in the Q&A to, to break it open, because sometimes that what will happen in, uh, in the realm of theology for Christians is we, are, we won't either, either we won't think deeply enough to have really critical and necessary questions to ask, or um, we can't think deeply enough to have really critical questions to ask. And where that becomes the case If someone is seriously trying to figure out what your religion is about, they really can't come to you because you're not thinking it through enough to anticipate complicated questions and complicated issues. Now, certainly, listen, if you listen to me for an hour, an hour, 15 minutes, hour and a half, you really should have some complicated questions. See what I'm saying? And see, complicated questions only means your brain is being stretched. Your heart is being stretched. The muscles of your thinking are being stretched as it rightly should. And you don't have to have an anxiety attack about having the answer because you don't need to know everything. You do need to want to know everything that God wants you to know. You don't need to know everything, but you should want to know. This has to do with inclination. This has to do with hunger and desire. You should want to know everything that God wants you to know. So what we want to know here is why Paul is warning the church at Corinth not to be ignorant so that by application, we won't be ignorant as well. So let's walk this through. We started already. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What I told you last time was couple the cloud and the sea as one unit in relationship to the metaphor um, that 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 Paul is about to apply here or the analogy one unit. It is two individually, but it's one unit, the cloud and the sea equals the experience of baptism for them. You guys got that? The cloud and the sea equals the experience of baptism for them. And you and I talked at length on Tuesday about how the cloud represented God's presence. That's sub point A in your outline, right? The cloud of covering God's presence and then God's protection of Israel. And then the cloud of mystery has to do with the fact that when the cloud descends and shrouds everything, men and women now are walking in a level of obscurity by which their only comfort is they know that God is present. They know that, I mean, for us, if if there was a cloud to descend now and really did take out our visual optics, we might be disturbed, wouldn't we? Um, But if we knew that that cloud was a symbol of the presence of God, We should not be disturbed. We should not be disturbed. Matthew chapter 17, around verse three through five, when Peter, James and John were on the mount, a cloud descended and enshrouded them with Jesus. And that's where Jesus was glorified before them. And the father spoke to them to just take that matter of the cloud up. Uh, Peter, James and John were somewhat trepidatious, but they heard the voice of God, didn't they? What a great privilege. Okay, so. Uh, A covering occurs, a mystery takes place, but also a revelation. A covering occurs, not everybody's going to see it. A mystery takes place. God is present in a very visceral way, but God speaks. So now we have revelation. See, I would be worried if there was just a cloud 
and no voice. Right. Because now I got to I got to try to determine whether or not providentially what's happening is something that um, that I should be concerned about, albeit I don't have a whole lot of scriptural reference about people being enshrouded in, in a cloud without God being present. That might come up as a sort of refutational or an antithesis to this. In this context, the cloud of covering and the cloud of mystery are a benefit for the people of God. You guys remember, we looked at Exodus chapter 13, how that God took the cloud and put it behind the children of Israel to block them from the Egyptians. So it was a cloud of protection as he led them through the sea. And I told you he led them on dry, dry ground so that they were, un, they were not unstable in their journey. And that's extremely important for you and I too, particularly under the rubric of, of baptism. When you and I go into the waters of baptism, what it teaches you and I, you and me, is that our stability is in God. Even though we're gonna go through very difficult trials, our stability is in God. Even though we're going to experience baptismal waters and baptismal waters do often signify trials. The waters have overwhelmed me, said David. They've gone over my head and I cry out to God as one in great deep. And so God shows up, as he says in Isaiah chapter 43, I believe, when you go through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. What a paradoxical tension, because I'm not super comfortable out there in the Atlantic Ocean. When it's bobbing up and down, you know, I better have a vest on. I can swim a little bit, but just a little bit. Right. Once you get tired and exhausted, we got a problem, don't we? Right. So being in the topsy turvy waters are, are, are they can be problematic for you and me at the emotional and psychological level. And they are metaphors for our trials. Obviously, the baptism of fire, that's what we talked about as well. The antithesis to water. Baptism of fire is what Mishael, Hananiah and Azariah went through. Did they not? They were cast into a baptism of fire by the Babylonians, that antithetical system to the Jerusalem kingdom. And here these men were cast in because they believed God. They trusted God. Now, if God wasn't as we state that he is, God can't lie. God can't change. And God won't what? He won't ever fail. God showed up in the fire with them, did he not? And the fire did not burn them as Isaiah said it would not. That's remarkable because Isaiah said that 700 years before Jesus. He said it 200 years before Mishael, Hananiah and Azariah went into the fire. And, and, and that's a that's a word of hope for you and me, is it not? So what I'm what I want you to do with that as we get ready to move forward in terms of the concept of baptism, it should bring a level of comfort in this sense that our faith in Christ, which God gave to us, led us to join him in the difficulty of his suffering. Which takes on a repetitive process in our sanctification. Our faith in Christ, which allowed us to enter into the waters of baptism on a public level, was a public joining with Jesus in his sufferings, was it not? 
which by virtue of that analogy, we then are committed to the uh, reverberation and, and, and replication of that suffering in our own life as part of our sanctification. We embrace the once for all baptism of Christ as a total cleansing and sanctification for us. We are one with him. And now that he has risen, we also have risen with him. We are seated with him, are we not? But there's another sense in which we're making our journey through the world and we are baptized people. What that means is we are people that are committed to suffering, knowing that Jesus will be with us. I'm trying to help you get it before we go on into the, the rest of it. And now it's really important that you get it because guess what? Whether you get it or not, it's happening. You're going to go through some trials and you might as well know that those trials were sealed by the waters of baptism as a promissory note by God to you that he'll be with you in it as you were in it with him. See, this is that husband wife thing again. We got in the water with Jesus because he loved us and gave himself for us. He got in the water for us because he loved us and gave himself for us. And now we're joining him in his sufferings so that men and women might come to know what the waters of baptism means. This is what Paul is saying concerning the fathers, the fathers. I like that. The fathers. Verse two. Let's go on. Verse two. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. For those of you who are taking notes, What Paul did right there was identify the framework of the covenant because water baptism was a covenant. And the covenant here is the covenant of the law, the covenant of Moses. They were baptized unto Moses. I want you to get that. That's that's obvious, right? They were baptized unto the leadership of Moses. They were baptized unto Torah. They were baptized unto the Old Testament. They were baptized in that. The New Testament saints are baptized into Christ. That's Romans chapter six, three. I'm putting that note up there because the idea of being baptized unto Moses is going to help us understand, at least in part, why they failed. Okay, because as much as we love Moses, Moses is not Jesus. And there is a reason that they were baptized unto Moses with all the troubles that they are going to endure. And we can we can elucidate that and bring that out as well. But let's keep going for the moment, because I definitely want us to get further into our text um, before we shut it down. Notice what it says, a verse three and did all eat the same what spiritual meat. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the manna. Is he not talking about the manna? That's number chapter 15, the manna. Chapter 16, rather, the manna. What is the matter pointing to? Christ. Jesus said he is the what of life? The bread of life. But the manna was only pointing to Christ. The manna was not Christ. The manna was pointing to Christ. Y'all keeping up with me? So what we're doing is we're making a categorical distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament at the qualitative level. What do I mean? The Old Testament was typological and it was pattern oriented. It was metaphors and it was analogies of the reality that we have in the New Testament in Jesus. Did that make some sense? All right. So I want you to get that because as much as we enjoy the pictures of the Old Testament, we only enjoy them because we know those pictures point us to a reality. So when we're teaching and preaching, y'all are waiting for that bus to land in Jesus land. 
right? Come on, preacher, get us, get us to the substance, right? That's what really solid Bible-based gospel-centered auditors are always doing. I'm loving the unpacking of this, but take us home now. Take us home. Get us to Jesus, right? Because that's the substance. And that's what the Spirit of God uses to actually sanctify your heart. The revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. That's how he sanctifies you. And so he said they all ate of the same what? Spiritual meat. So now we're not only talking about experiencing physically the water and its weight and coldness and its dampness or not, because when you look into the scriptures, the waters had separated like a wall between Israel so high that Israel was just walking through a tunnel, if you will. But it still would have been cold. It still would have been somewhat alarming and nemesing. It still would have been somewhat mysteriously apprehensive. Would you agree with that? You have to. Because baptism is not something to play with. Baptism is a death. They passed through a death. And when you're passing through a death, it's going to call your attention at all of the psycho deep physiological, deep, emotional uh, elements of, of what constitutes our mortality. They're walking through that. The kids are walking through that. The teenagers, are, the old people are walking. The dogs and the cats are walking through it. The, the goats and the bulls are walking through it. The sheep are walking through it. They all were baptized in the same way the goats and the sheep and the birds and the ducks were baptized in Noah when he put them into the ark. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm nurturing your thoughts before we get there. And they all went through a crazy one year period too. What in the world is going on, right? As the boat is rising and the rains are coming down and coming on the ark, but the ark is secure. But believe me, it wasn't a vacation. Until 40 days later, when the rain stopped and they still had to float on the surface of the earth for another 110 days. And then 150 days, 110 days, 40 days, 110 days, 150, six months. And then the waters began to subside and it landed on the Mount Ararat, right? So you can imagine a lot of things were going on in their mind inside that are. That's what baptism should do for us in terms of we are now one with Christ in this thing called the sufferings of Christ. And it will take on some reverberating application for you and me. But here's another one. We're feeding on 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 the manna. Now it becomes even more personal, doesn't it? Because remember, they explained the manna and I'm not going to do it now, but you should know it. It tasted like coriander seed. I have no idea what coriander seed tastes like. I'm a brother from the hood in the 21st century. Help me out. So any of my Jewish brethren, whoever they wanted, help me understand what it tastes like. But now Moses said it was kind of like a wafer. And I'm cool with wafers as long as I got some honey and some jelly and some jam. Right? But But I'm cool with the wafer. So... It it, it appears that it was tasty, but it was not meant to overwhelm your taste buds because it was for strength more than it was for pleasure. 
And it was to train our taste buds. So I can drill down into this. Can I drill down into us? So it can, it's meant to train our taste buds. So this is really something that the believer has to get a grip on in this world, what your spiritual diet is, right? Because if we've got too much of a mishmash going on in our spiritual diet, it can actually uh, mitigate the real blessing of the, uh, of the, uh, the quality of the wafer in its simplicity, in its lightness, in its taste. When you and I are changing up our diet for the purpose of getting healthy, and you know um, we could do a better job of that, uh, frequently what we're trying to do is recover our palate. In, in a diet where we are trying to rearrange our um, imbalanced eating, too many carbs, too many sweets, too many this, too many that, we are really gradually and slowly purging our palate so that our palate can readjust itself to a taste that is constituent with the goal of a healthier lifestyle. And once that palate is actually practicing that, which is where we're getting ready to go in our last point, when you are practicing a healthy diet, When you veer from that diet, you know it immediately. If you have a commitment to that experience, that regimen of the change of the diet, then what you are also saying is, even though I may veer as a a, a sort of a process of grace, because we're allowed to enjoy all things with temperance, Because I am part of that dietary regimen, I'm going to get back to my diet in short order because I am no longer committed to overwhelming my taste buds by synthetic pleasure. Speaking metaphorically, I'm speaking by analogy now, am I not? Because pleasure is not the same thing as healthy and pleasure is not the same thing as strength. And we know that. And when you have a healthy palate, you actually are aware of that because your palate then becomes, it becomes the sort of uh, portal into the body. And the body is able to more quickly pick up on a process of health is taking place now. As opposed to the body picking up on, here we go with extra sugars, here we go with extra calories, here we go with extra synthetics and all kind of other chemicals that now the body has to fight against and it probably can't because it's overloaded and toxified. And that can be the same way at a spiritual level where you and I have not had a healthy proportion of spiritual uh, deference or spiritual choices in our life over against carnal things. Did that make some sense? Of course it does. Of course it does. That's uh, you are what you eat. If we speak metaphorically. And so the apostle says they all did have a very significant typological pattern of feeding on Christ. And God gave that to them to endure that 40 years. You know that he said this is in order to get you in the land, because what you and I should know is the self same day Israel ultimately came in the land. The manna ceased. That means the manna was to get them through the wilderness. The manna was not a non-negotiable. But you and I already know that they complained several times about the manna. All right. All right. So let's keep going now. Very interesting. Verse four. And they did all drink the same spiritual drink 
for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Yes. Now, this I was teaching our men this in our uh, in our morning class a couple of days ago um, about what is called elliptical statements. Elliptical, E-L-Y-T-I-C-A-L, elliptical statements. Elliptical statements are phrases that are truncated that imply that there's more to what's being stated than is there. For instance, I'll give you an example. This here truncated phrase, phrase in the last clause, and that rock was what? Great phrasing for a song. And that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. I mean, with, with our kids, we used to do that all the time with the songs. And that rock was an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that rock pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That rock was not literally and factually the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, it wasn't the rock they drank. It was the water out of the rock. So we're moving into what is called synecdotal terminology too, which is what I teach you. Jesus used that term when he says, take this cup and drink, right? Take this bread and eat. Well, you don't drink a cup. You drink the contents in the cup. That's a synecdotal statement. But you are embracing the whole thing because the whole thing is representing the larger reality that Christ has become a vehicle of purging and sanctification for you. And in that vessel called the cup, you are enjoying the contents. Does that make some sense? Right. So it's important for you to know because people literally have argued these things historically. Uh, as to whether they were literal or metaphorical. So it's the same thing here. That rock was a picture that pointed to the satisfaction of the soul by the water of life, which is the spirit of God in Christ. That's what he's saying. Now notice what he says next, verse five, which is going to move us on. But with many of them, God was not what? Well pleased. And that's the phrase that's used concerning Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am. Well, please. So let's park it here because what Paul is about to do now is parse the privilege from the problem. He's about to parse the privilege from the problem, which is probably why people don't like the Bible. Because <laughs> the, the parts of the Bible that people like are the privileges and the promises. Don't they? They don't like the problems. But the problems are there to warn us. And we're getting ready to work through that now. And what Paul would say is with all of that, we said in verses one through four, we still have a problem. Right. With all that we've said about the coming out, all of them came out. All of them passed under the cloud. All of them passed through the sea. All of them ate of the bread. All of them drank of every one of them. But we still have a problem. And that problem is that with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now, we could frame that in theological terms. God did not see them in Christ. God did not see them in Christ. Right. Because we are really only well pleased in him with whom God was well pleased. Did that make some sense? Right. So like, I mean, you know, when the when the heavens open up and God says, this is the one. He's not pointing to you and me personally, but he is pointing to us representatively. And that representative 
element is our comfort long as we don't trade places with Jesus and make ourselves Jesus. Because if we do that now, we are missing the point of union. Union is that the twain become what? And one of them benefits from the other. And that is you and I. We benefit from Jesus because the father places us in Jesus. And as Jesus is, so are we in Jesus. Right. That's the way I pray for us. Right. That is called union. And what a blessing it is to be called the beloved, the akapetos. Right. Because we are in the beloved. So the father is well pleased with us for Christ's sake. That's another way to put it for Christ's sake. And so now he's going to uh, parse it and tell us about the folks for whom he was not well pleased. And then he says, here's why. For they were overthrown in the what? All right. So this term is crazy. I'm just going to touch on it. I didn't have it in my notes, but I know something. um, I know something about the grammar and the use of the term. Overthrown is a military term for destroying a nation that becomes your adversary. Did you get that? Yeah, overthrown is a military term for destroying a nation that becomes your adversary. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So so Nineveh was an adversary to God and God had already strategically and intelligently waged war to destroy it. He said, Jonah, you go. You better go tell them. You better go tell them because they're very haughty. They're killing children. They're slaughtering children. They are a bunch of sadomasochists. They are a bunch of perverts. They're idolatry. We're getting ready to get into all that right now. He says, you better tell them because I'm going to overthrow them. Overthrowing means to take the whole thing and turn it upside down and annihilate it. So it doesn't ever, it, it appears like it never existed. Uh, you are in some kind of trouble when God decides to overthrow you. Isn't that right? But and, 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 and the wild thing by way of historical context here that, that you and I want to get the lesson on is these are supposed to be God's people, huh? And God's overthrowing them. And just for the record, so that you don't fall prey to uh, stinking thinking or lazy thinking, which is a big problem in America, God never arbitrarily judges anyone. He never just, ah, I'm going to do it because I just feel like, I'm tired, I'm going to do it. Don't don't ask no questions, I'm just going to do it. Ask you and me. You know, when we lose our mind, we want to just arbitrarily wipe everybody out. You know, we just just psychopaths like that. But um, God's not that way. When he does that, it's because it has been a lengthy trial of argumentation, witnessing, warning, and testifying on God's part towards that group of people. He's long-suffering, and then he brings judgment. Those were his characteristics in in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Remember, he's merciful, but he's also just. So when he goes to overthrow, he's doing it in his justice. So under our second point, third point, I'm almost sure that's where we are, um, yeah, uh, participation, ingesting Christ, strengthen to obey him. That's the whole point of the ingesting that should have been marked out. Now we're moving into the practicing of what? 
That's our final point, the practicing of righteousness. You can read in your own time under the idea of the strengthening to obey him. This idea of feeding on crisis to strengthen us to obey him. That was marked clearly in the life of King, uh, uh, the life of uh, Saul of Tarsus when he became Paul. He had been blinded on the Damascus Road, as you guys know the account. And he was told to be led to a house on the street called Straight. And he had to stay there until Ananias came and preached to him the purposes of God in Christ and then uh, lay hands on him and then baptize him. You guys remember that event? All right. So I just want to just for some of you, just for the record, I want us to go to just that portion of scripture in Acts chapter uh, nine, verse 17 through 20, because I want you to see the analogy again of the benefits of baptism and then the Lord's table and then we'll move forward. Notice what the text says. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hand on Saul said, brother Saul, you guys see that? Right. This is Ananias walking by what? Faith, because at this moment, it was not a public consent that Saul was brother Saul. At this moment, Saul was the most notorious antithesis to God for the uh, Christian Jews that there could have been. And so I know that Ananias, because you know, uh, previous verses, Ananias and the Lord, you show this to dude you want me to go to. You guys remember that? Yeah, it's this is you can just talk to God. Keep it real. Is this your assignment? You people ask me all the time, Pastor, how do I know this is my assignment? Because you don't want to do it. That's how you know. That's how you know. <laughs> you don't want to die. I don't, I don't and, and you know, you might as well keep it real with God because you're going to do the assignment. Right. Love is going to overwhelm you because it's not about you. So so Ananias said, Lord, now is this the one? I mean, you, you know, you know, that's just honest. But between having that conversation with God and getting to Saul, God graced Ananias to love that man. All right. So this is a word for some of you. The space between the assignment and the assignment executed can be radically transformational as you submit to God. The space between the assignment given and the assignment, the assignment executed can be radically transformational. Like you don't have to start off wholesale being persuaded that this is right. You don't because often God is going to come to you in your weakness. And, 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 and really bring you and I back to square one that assignments that he doesn't give us that he gives us are not predicated upon him first explaining everything and winning your approval. Did that come home? Come here, I, I, I know this is going to be hard. Give me some time. I want to explain this to you. I really want you to get it before you know. Yeah, Jonah, go to Nineveh, right? And, and, and many times you'll see in the scriptures where God calls his servants to go, they go in trepidation and they finish in triumph. Right. And that would be what you and I would want, too. And, and if you just want a, a sort of a brief model of someone who I believe is like a quiet star, that would be Mary, the mother of Christ. I think she's absolutely phenomenally brave. Speak, Lord, your handmaiden is listening to you at your word, be it so. Right. I mean, once. I mean, once that happened, it was on and she was going through it and she endured it, didn't she? And the fruit is, is that there's no woman on the planet like Mary. 
All right, what a blessing. And so the text says, he said, Brother Saul, even Jesus that appeared unto you in the way as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. He was blinded and he was still unconverted, wasn't he? He was blinded because God blinded him by the light. Verse 18, come on verses. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. Now this is what we want, don't we? This is what we want. And these are what we call um, requisites or tokens of our salvation. One of the things we are often looking for as uh, believers in relationship to lost people is when the scales fall off and they begin to pierce through the veil of obscurity and begin to see the kingdom of God and the glories of Christ. That's what we're looking for. That is what we're looking for. And until that epiphany is occurring, we're still very uh, precarious in our confidence, right? Because we can listen to loved ones talking and we'll go, they're not quite getting it, right? Now, now we're not judging them because they could be born again, right? Because when the baby comes out, the baby is not always fully seen. I can talk about processes there, but eventually that sight has to emerge, um, and that's why Paul talks. Uh, that's why Paul talks in, in Romans chapter two about being babes or blind. So God blinded him in order to help him realize he was a babe in Christ. Did that make some sense? Right. And now someone more mature, Ananias, is going to lay hands on him so that he can have the revelation. And once you get the spirit of God, the revelation is epiphany. It's illumination. It's now the manifestation of the kingdom of God. This is what Christ meant in John chapter three, except you be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't comprehend it. It doesn't take on a reality in the depths of your soul to become your epistemy. This is what we get our term epistemology. You're standing. You stand on what you know, right? But you only know what you understand and you only understand what you see or comprehend or perceive. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about for us. And so he received his sight and straightway the text says he what? Arose and was what? Right. And this is what we call the first act of obedience upon conversion. When a man or woman is born again, they have that revelation. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says. Pull that up, verses 4 through 6. This is a fundamental text for asserting that salvation is an illumination or a creative epiphany. In the same way in the creation narrative, and God said, let there be and there was light. So it is in our conversion. There is a creative epiphany. Boom! There is an absolute photizo is the Greek term from which we get the idea of a photograph. Back in the day when they took photographic pictures, they had the light and the flash and that flash gave that that image of the thing that was projected upon it so that you have that now image captured in on the film. And you got to go in the dark room and run that process to bring the image up. It was in the light, then in the dark, and then processed, and now can be brought to the light, right? That's photosynthesis. And so he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why, why are we going back here? I told you to go back to not verse four. Okay, no. There you go. <laughs> uh, and forthwith, and arose and was baptized. We can go to verse 19. 
We can go to verse 19. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with disciples, with the disciples which are at Damascus. Go back to verse 18. Now I'm looking at what's happening here in terms of, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it were, had been scales. They were not real scales as it were. And he received his sight and forthwith arose and was baptized. So there's a movement of obedience to the water, is there not? There's a movement of obedience to the water, which is also another element that we are somewhat concerned about as a necessary requisite for a sincere being called to the kingdom of God. So in my own experience as a pastor for many years, I've watched a lot of people parse their salvation into kind of homemade modes of receiving Jesus. Like some people will um, will receive Jesus in the fundamental propositions of the faith, but they won't come to church. I believe Jesus, but I don't I don't believe in the church. Have you heard that? Sure. And then um, and then so some people will say they have a relationship with God's word, but they won't come to the waters of baptism. And 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 then some people might come to the waters of baptism, but they're not eating the elements. They're not drinking the cup or eating the bread. They don't like the way the cup tastes. I'm like, man, I've never heard that before in my life. They don't like the way the bread tastes. That is not obedience. That is not obedience. Now, I don't say it much because I just go, okay, that's on them. They got to answer to the Lord for that. Right. Now, if they got a Bible verse that tells us what the real constituent elements of the bread is, get it and bring it to me. And what the real constituents of the wine is, get it and bring it to me. And then we'll confirm form. Right. But I just got a funny suspicion that what's going on is a kind of partial obedience because people are not used to really submitting to Jesus. Am I making some sense? I might be talking to some in the audience. Right. You know. I got some kids like that. They're being they're, they're comfortable in their partial walk. But just think about Saul. A minute ago, he was killing Christians. Now he is strengthened to go get in the water. Yep. See it? This is called conversion. When you're turned around and going the other way and you're compelled to follow through. Now Saul is getting ready to enter into the emblematic waters of what Jesus has said back in chapter nine. Saul, you have to testify before many kings and you're going to suffer many things for my namesake. That's what the baptism is all about. Y'all got that? That's what the baptism is all about. Okay, let's go back to our text because I want to deal with our final point and then we can do some Q&A. The thoughts around this are interesting. It's called practicing righteousness. That's the way I'm framing verses five through 14. And I kind of want to read it, just kind of read it through what, for what it says. I'm going to highlight a few things and then next week we'll come back <clears throat> and unpack it more. So when we talk about practicing righteousness, what we are talking about is walking in what can be described as the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. When we're talking practicing righteousness, we're talking about responding to God's word from the premise of being a believer in Christ and therefore obeying him as Lord. Did that make some sense? 
Right. Because there is a kind of <clears throat> understanding of practicing of righteousness that can be rooted in trying to merit favor with God on the grounds of what we do. Right. That is what Jesus warned about. I'm getting ready to talk about that presumption in a minute when he said in Matthew chapter seven to those who on the last day came to him and he said unto them, I never knew you depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. What was their appeal? Their appeal was, Lord, Lord, did not we do this? Did not we do that? Didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we heal in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works? I'm going, whoa. That's the grounds of your hope that you are accepted of Christ. They got the whole foundation completely turned upside down, didn't they? And, and that is one of the uh, accounts in Matthew 7. That was part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount that actually turned the Pharisees viscerally against Christ. Because in that same chapter, Jesus said in chapter five, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom. So when we get to the latter part of chapter seven, guess who we might surmise he was talking about? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Am I making some sense? Of course. Men and women who are walking in the false confidence of their good works are their partial obedience because the good works of meritorious righteousness is partial obedience. It is not full and proper obedience. Did that make some sense? It may be an external obedience, but it's partial because the element that is not done is believing in Christ as the grounds of our righteousness so that we are not doing anything in order to merit favor, but from a motive of joy and thanksgiving that Christ has already obtained righteousness for us. Did that come home? Very big difference. Very big difference. And so when we're talking about practicing righteousness, there are um, two fundamental uh, sub points I want to deal with. And then I kind of want to walk through the text. And again, I'm going to unpack the text a little bit more next week so we can wrestle with the kind of warnings that Paul gave. <clears throat> sub point A, when we're talking about practicing of righteousness, we're talking about the character and conduct of the kingdom. Did that make some sense? So the kingdom of God by character has to be understood as sikinyu in the Old Testament. That's the idea for righteousness. And in the uh, New Testament is diakos. Diakos or diakosis. It's the idea of righteousness. It is an, a right standing with God and practicing a behavior on the grounds of that right standing. So Romans 14, 17 is a verse I often use. If the kingdom of God is present in your life, this this will be the triad that's oper operating as a foundation and a manifestation. You'll be operating on the foundation of Christ's righteousness and your engagement with that righteousness will produce the fruit of peace in your life and its overflow will be joy. So now please understand, I will call this a, a trifecta, not just a triad, a trifecta. Righteousness one, peace two, joy three. Did that come home? Right. So a trifactor is always a one, two, three combination as a winning factor. Right. This makes all the sense in the world to me. Why would I have peace if I'm not standing on the righteousness of Christ? Because peace would be a fruit of the spirit of God. 
And he would not give me peace if he knows deeply that my foundation is not in who Jesus is and what he did for me. Now, if he gives me peace, that peace might merit for me a kind of overflow because in my walk with God, it's going to actually avail me to right choices. Y'all can talk about that. When I am not making right choices, my peace is going to diminish necessarily so. When I am found making right choices because I'm walking near to God and I'm being sensitive to his providence, I have the peace That is a signal that I am in the present favor and approval with God with the thing that I'm doing. That's 1 John chapter 4, by the way, right? If our heart does not condemn us, then God has assured us it's the thing that we can do. If our heart does condemn us, we got to park it because there may be something wrong. That's 1 John chapter 4. And you guys know this by practice. I don't have to go there. Here's what you know as a child of God. What you know is you no longer, as was the case before you were saved, you no longer can just act a fool and get away with it. Like once you're born again, like truly born again, you can't even really get away with the secret crazy thoughts you have. Because enough of them will take your peace away. Am I making some sense? Right. <laughs> Enough of them will take your peace away. And, and, and rightly so, because to actually contemplate in the secret places of our heart, rebellion and disobedience and wickedness is dangerous. It's dangerous. Don't you think? Right. It's preparation for action. We strategize in the mind. Cain. Why is your countenance fallen? Don't you know if you do the right thing, it will be well with you? But if not, you're opening the door for an adversary to have its way with you and you with it and the outcome will not be well. Did that make some sense? Right. Uh, And I've said it before, the reason why it's important for you as a child of God to know that you will have a disruption in your mind and heart is because God is Lord now of your heart. Like, and, and this is a beautiful thing. I want to hear from you on that. I want, we want to touch on that because I'm getting ready to raise a question. Give me 10 more minutes. You know, it's really important that our hearts have, have been turned into flesh. Stony heart taken out, hearts of flesh put in. As difficult as that can be, because <clears throat> it is difficult. It's difficult to have a a fleshly heart. Would you agree? Because that means you get bothered easily. Poked and prodded. Pressed down. David talks about a heavy heart. Right? Paul said that there was a pricking of the heart in Acts 9. And then again in Acts 2. And they were pricked in the heart. That means you got a fleshly heart. So the spirit of God, the spear of righteousness is poking you by the Holy Ghost. It doesn't feel good. And sometimes when you have to thrust real hard, that's when the soul goes, oh! Have you ever heard your soul do that? Oh! Yeah. And that wound is there for a minute. And people think, you know, something's wrong with you. No, something's right with you. Right? They think something's wrong with you. No, something's right with you. You know, God is dealing with you. I mean, this is the thing. This is what 
uh, Jeremiah 32 talked about concerning uh, Rachel weeping for her children and, and crying out because she had been wounded by God for her rebellion and her brokenness and bemoaning. That's a beautiful thing. This is why uh, David said in Psalm 33 and Psalm 51, a broken and a contrite heart you will never despise, O God, because that's God's work himself, right? It's a beautiful thing. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So that is what I call character and conduct of the kingdom of God. We should be bringing some of that with us everywhere we go. At some level or another, at least at the foundation level of righteousness. You might be jacked up in your peace because you, you know you're not walking quite right with God, but you should be walking on the foundation of righteousness. What that means is people should still be able to get truth claims from you around Jesus. They might be worried about your attitude and, and all that all jacked up because the Lord dealing with you, but you should still be able to open your mouth and tell the truth about Jesus, right? And uh, you know, you may or may not have peace, but that's okay. Peace is a beautiful thing. It is the gift of God when we are walking in the character and conduct of the kingdom. Now, sub point B is going to deal with what we call the culmination of it. And that is what I meant by the nature of the kingdom of God. That's going to be first Peter chapter three, verse 13 through 15. Listen to what Peter says. This is the eschatological end of our salvation on earth. Here's what he says. First Peter, second uh, Peter three, I'm sorry. Second Peter three, 13. <clears throat> It's going to be second Peter. Nevertheless, we, that's you and I, all believers, according to his what? Now, remember, faith is always attached to what? Promise. Always remember that. Biblical faith is never just hanging in the suspense of a vacuum. It's born of a promise and it's rooted in a promise and it's cultivated by God's word until the promise appears and is manifested and fully fleshed out. You and I live on the promises of God. Did that make some sense? It has to. You have to understand faith as emerging from a promise, as being cultivated and kept by promises. And as terminating in ultimate promises, this is the, the euangelion, the, the good news of the gospel. The epangelion is the promise, the gospel. Uh, he that believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be what? Saved. That's a future tense. So believing leads to salvation. That is a promise. And that's something you and I um, know. Nevertheless, we according to his promise. Does God promise to create a new heavens and a new earth? And then he promises that in that new in heavens and a new earth dwells what? I said. So imagine, imagine um, a new heavens and a new earth impeccably permeated through and through with righteousness. See it? Now, y'all know we don't know what we're talking about. I mean, you can get all excited and everything, but y'all know we don't know what we're talking about. Do we know what we do? No, we don't know what we're talking about. But it's a kind of intuitive anticipation of something great with the presence of God. Because God is our righteousness, right? He is our you. <clears throat> and so what it is talking about is God's presence at a much more profound level than God's presence in our world right now. A new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness now is the material foundation and surrounding that is now made compatible with the people of God who are already righteous. 
if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. So as a new creature, righteousness is a seed within us right now. Would you agree with that? I'm going to be going back to that on Sunday with the first fruits and the cluster. You and I have the first fruits of the cluster of righteousness in us. This is why we can talk about it. This is why we can love it. This is why we can long for it. This is why we can cry over it when we are disjointed from it in our own experience because we have the seed in us. Men and women who don't have the incorruptible seed of righteousness in them don't enjoy this kind of lecture. Am I making some sense? Right. So nevertheless, we look for a new heavens, and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. It is that permanent event that will happen uh, on the last day. So let's do some walking through and then we can do some talking through and call it a wrap. I'm in chapter 10 and I'm going to start by highlighting or framing these 14 verses around verse uh, verse um, five, verse six. Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they. You guys got that? So the first thing I want you to take is that verse six for us is a warning. I want you to get that. That's a warning. That's verse six. So this line of reasoning that Paul gives us starts with a warning. And then I want you to see what he does in verses seven through ten. Verses seven, eight, nine, and 10. I'm just going to break these off, highlight these. I'm not going to go into them deeply because I just want you to see. Notice what he says over in verse seven after having stated that. Neither be ye idolaters. Do you see that? The word I want you to capture there is the word neither. Neither. Neither is tying you to the previous verse where you and I are being warned. Neither. Also do not, neither be, in addition to the warning, neither be. And we can deal with the idolater later. But look at verse eight. He does the same thing. He frames it the same way. Notice what he says in verse eight. Neither let us commit fornication. You see that? That's the second neither. So what he's doing is he's stacking what might be understood as example upon example upon example, because what he gave us in the warning was these things were given to us for examples, tuposes, patterns, types. Those Old Testament were types, patterns. We got to look at that type and see in that type a reality with which you and I have something to do with. Right, that's important. So in verse eight, he has a uh, seven, he has a neither. In verse eight, he has a neither. In verse nine, he has a neither, does he not? Does he have one in verse 10? Of course. So we have four neithers. And we could easily begin to unpack them because what Paul wants you to do is start with the warning. He's giving you a complete package. He's he's warning you, these things are patterns that you and I should not lust after things like they did. So he's telling us we got to actually check our lust. Isn't that what he's saying? Right. And then look at verse uh, 10. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Neither. Yeah. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmur and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now he he's going to couple these four, which we can look at later with verse 11. 
Look at verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for examples. He's coming back, right? Once again, verse six example, verse 11 example. In between the example are the illustrations. Are the illustrations. Now all these things happen unto them for examples and they are written for their admonition. For ours. So what that means is when we read the Old Testament, we got to learn the lesson for ourselves. What that means is when I read the Old Testament, I can't go, man, those wicked Jews, those rebellious, hard-headed Jews, won't they ever get it? No, I have completely missed the application. Completely, the Spirit of God is taking a long route back through history like a... Um, like a boomerang. If I wait, it's coming back and hitting me upside the head. Boom. Because it's warning me not to be like that. That's exactly what it's saying. Now, all these things have happened unto them for an example, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the what? Ends of the world have come. All right. This is where we're going to just about stop, but we'll come back and shred it apart here, here, Paul says, upon whom the ends of the world have come. What does he mean by that? Does he mean the end of the world in which you and I live in? The answer is no. What he means by that is the end of the Jewish world. The end of the Old Testament world. Now think about it. So Paul is a Jew. He's writing to Christians who are made up of Jews and Gentiles. He's writing to them about Torah, which was written by Jews about Jews and Gentiles. So the community that Paul is writing to, he is also writing about that same community going back to the beginning of time. And he's saying, you and I have come to the end of that old community. The old covenant now is coming to an end. Does that make some sense to you guys? Let me help you help bring that home. This is going to be Hebrews chapter eight. We're going to start at around verse 11 so you can capture the point that I am making. And Paul is here, too, so that you don't fall prey to another dualism, uh, a, a, uh, a not detecting the dualism of the idea of the end of the world. Whenever you read in your Bible, the end of the world, don't always go the end of the final world. The end of time, the end of the universe. No, it's the end of that age. Okay, that that epic, that period of time. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter verse. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. What is he talking about? The new covenant. Verse 12. For I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities. I will what? Remember no more. Is that not the promise of the gospel? Of course it is. Now watch verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant, see, he hath made the first what? So the old covenant is the Old Testament from Genesis up to Malachi, the promises given by Moses to the people of Israel that Messiah would come. The Old Testament was culminated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished. When the veil of the temple was rent, 
the old covenant now is of no more effect relative to going to the temple, offering sacrifices, submitting to the Aaronic priesthood. The gospel now goes to everyone in the euangelion or the preaching of the gospel by the apostles. So when that veil was rent in the temple, it was a precursor to the end of the Jewish age, which would end 37 years later. If Christ died in AD 33, 37 years later would be what? AD 70. AD 70 would be when the temple is destroyed. To destroy the temple is to destroy the priesthood. To destroy the priesthood is to destroy the covenant. And to destroy the covenant means that we are looking for another one. And what the Hebrew writer says is we have another one. It is a new covenant. We have another priest. The priest is Jesus. Y'all got that? So you and I are in the new covenant. Our priest is Melchizedek and we have a temple. It is spiritual in nature. It's not an earthly temple. And so there has been a change of covenants, which would our Jewish brethren love to argue right now? No, there's only one covenant. So like the whole New Testament means nothing to them. I mean, literally, it means nothing to them. For them, Paul was an absolute rebel against Moses. It's really true. It's really true. But Jesus was a rebel against Moses, too, because Jesus said Moses spoke of me and Moses's job is done. Now I'm here. The one who said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, uh, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like unto me from among your brethren. Him you will hear or you will perish. That was Jesus. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, is he not? And he's the mediator of better promises, is he not? He's the mediator of a more sure and lasting covenant. That's the whole argument of the Hebrew writer. Jesus is better. That's called new covenant theology. And what he's expressing here is how the old covenant gradually faded away in its application and in its usefulness to today. <clears throat> Israel... Uh, has a Talmudic religion. Israel has a, um, a propositional religion, but Israel does not, as a body politic, have a centralized temple. They do not offer blood sacrifices. They're not engaging in that. They're waiting for that in some kind of eschaton. They are. But something radically happened that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 when he said, all these things are coming to an end. And it has been the case for 2,000 years, has it not? For us, when Jesus said what he said in Matthew 24, 1 and 2, it means Jesus was the last and greatest and most accurate prophet because the old covenant was ended. Now the Jews have to come to Jehovah some other way. And what Jesus said is, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jews have to come to Christ the same way Gentiles do. That's the way Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, does he not? God has condemned all under sin that he might have mercy on all so that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. Does that make some sense? Of course it does. And so I'm making that statement because you and I now are in a 2000 year uh, duration of the new covenant. The old covenant was a 2000 year duration from Abraham to Jesus, was it not? Abraham lived in around 21 BC. 2,000 years transpired. Let's just do some, some equations here numerically and then we'll do some Q&A and get out of here. 
Because all my Christian life, this is what I heard. I tend to agree with it. I'm not dogmatic. There were 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus, and there was 2,000 years between Jesus and us. That's a very equal equidistance of time. Many eschatologists would therefore argue that you and I are living in the end times, meaning the end of the end of the end times. If we argue from the inference of that equidistance between the old and the new, and they would be like mirror images, our bookends, 2,000 from Abraham to Jesus and from Jesus to us, 2,000, we could by inference say it's very possible that we are at the end of the new covenant age. Does that make some sense? I'm just kind of putting it out there so you guys aren't lost when people argue about these things, because this will come up in churches in a little while. You will have churches arguing eschatology once again particularly as things get really bad. The church is always a Jesus is coming when things get like really bad. Now he is coming, but it doesn't mean he's coming physically because he's coming and allowing that judgment to occur. And where you and I are in the Western world right now, we're in a very precarious situation. Everybody I talk to agrees with me on this. And, and I'm talking about saved and unsaved. I'm talking about Everybody. I'm talking about any kind of person that's somewhat relatively sensible with what's going on in our society. They know that we're up on a unusual epic. They know that we're under a thalipsis. In the Greek, thalipsis means a pressure. Something is about to break. All right. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. And what the exhortation in our text is, is that in spite of how bad things are going, the people of God are still called to practice righteousness. All right, let's do some Q&A. Let me, let me get a runner. We'll do just a few questions and then we'll shut it down. Yeah, you can come on up, AJ. That brother going to the bathroom. He ain't coming up here. Both of y'all can do that. Y'all raise your hand and let's knock it out. Otherwise, we'll shut it down. Good. Also, while they're doing that, I'm trying to recruit. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the audience. Our guys know we need to get to the park and mark out our spot. By seven o'clock in the morning, I need somebody to confirm that y'all going to be there with me. I just need to get that done. Craig is one. I got to make sure I get I, I really need about five brothers so we can unload the truck. So, AJ, that's another one. OK, cool. I'll need two or three others. Y'all can text me, email me or whatever the case may be. Um, but we got to get get there. And so, Craig, uh, take a couple, two or three cones like we do and cone off those back benches um, and then we'll be set. All right. Who has the mic? Start with uh, Miss Miss Jack Jacqueline. Okay, hi, Pastor. Hello. Um, I have so many questions. I mean, my brain is like going all over the place. But my did I do that? Yeah, you did. <laughs> baptism. When you were talking about baptism, my thoughts were that we're baptized in Christ, but also we're walking through the sea where we're in like the shadow of death. And um, I think of Paul, Ananias and Paul, and I go back to the Hebrew boys. I think of Elijah in the mountain, uh, well, in the cave when he, the mm-hmm. Lord passed by him in a cloud. And also going back to um, Numbers with um, Caleb and Joshua looking over and seeing the, the riches of the land, but 
and this is where this comes in when you said that don't when Paul says don't find yourself ignorant that the people lost out because of their grumble and you know I grumble I'm sinful I can grumble sometimes which makes me think oh lord am I going to make it? <laughs> you know make it in <laughs> because um I don't think they thought that. And then I think I go all the way back to the book of Corinthians with Paul and even with Stephen and what he did his, his, when they were crucifying him and killed him. And that richness, which is such a beautiful thing to be that enriched with Christ like that to, and then to act like when Christ says when they're crucifying him, please forgive them that we are to get to that point of being that forgiving. And I watched this movie with um, Emmett Till's mom. It was beautiful what she did. Yeah, it was just so amazing to me what she did and how she overcame obstacles and the hurt and pain. And... um, and Mary also, when you mention her, when she saw her son, it's, it's like it's unimaginable. But yet grace, I guess where grace is and... Um, where sin is. Where sin is, grace, grace is more abound. And then I mm-hmm. went back to, like I think it's First Corinthians 14, when... Um, Paul is talking about death having no sting. Chapter 15. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's taken away through Christ, mm-hmm. but yet he says prior to that that faith. I mean, I mean, death, sin is the strength the sting, of sin. The strength yeah. of sin is the law. Yeah, and the death of the, the, the sin sting, of death. The sting yes. of the sting of sin is right. death. Right. Right. All right. So let yeah. me take all that, wrap that up, and put it in a UPS package okay. for everybody. Very good, though. The word that you would use to highlight that exhortation is the word suffering. Right. So baptism anticipates suffering. And what we should be able to do as we mature is suffer for Christ's sake. That's what we're talking about. Stephen suffered. Paul suffered. The Hebrew boys suffered. Christ suffered. Suffering is the ability that God gives you by grace to allow loss. I'm going back to an early study for us. It's something we don't like naturally to lose something. Whenever you suffer, you're losing something. You have to know that. That's Matthew's 10. If you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. What that means is you embrace the certification of a life of loss. And when you lose something, it is a death-like because it's separation and death is separation. And what all of these scriptures are teaching you and me is one, please get this, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to lose something. So you really have to get used to losing things. If you just live, you're going to lose something like you're going to lose the 24 hours that you're in tomorrow. This day is gone. 
And so life is about losing things and losing them well and losing them in a way that you gain. And so all of those men and women that suffered for Christ's sake gained in their loss. That's the great trade-off. The great trade-off is what Paul meant in Philippians 3. I count all things loss for the gain of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And that excellency of his knowledge is the experiential thing that you're talking about. It's not academic. It's the experiential grace intuitively and circumstantially that allows you to take these hits that humble you and break you down because you're losing. But you also are gaining because you are gradually emerging up out of that loss and transformation and in the recovery of hope and in the recovery of optimism and in the recovery of faith. Doesn't that happen? Of course it does. So I'm speaking to the life of Christians. We don't want it, but it's the way it is. That's why I said just just the way it is. The outward man is perishing. That's loss. The inward man is being renewed daily. That's the great exchange. That's gain. So you and I gain actually greater spiritual qualities as we lose things. This is so true. The more we lose, the more we gain spiritually. This is so true. We don't like it, but it's true. The more we gain materially, the more we lose spiritually. We don't like it. It's true. It's a heck of a fight to stay qualitatively and quantitatively spiritual when you are gaining material things. The 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 tyranny and the usurpation of the flesh moves in and wants to glorify God with you. That'll come home in a second, but it's true. I I am. I just read it a few hours ago. Deuteronomy chapter eight. God told Israel because the game was coming into the promised land. He said, now, when you get there and you discover houses and lands and trees and fruit and goods. Don't you forget the Lord, your God. And I'm going to quote a verse here because the challenge for you and me is presumption. The challenge is presumption. Presupposing something. That's the challenge that we're going to have. That's why you got these warnings. The warning is about presumption. And so um, suffering is the word. If we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. Go Go on, Cindy. Okay, so the covering that is like the second or third time that that came up this week. You talked about it on Tuesday. You touched a little bit of it on today. So the spiritual covering, right? Most important. That's the most important. So my question would be, you talked about righteousness, and then comes the fruit of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when you are suffering... But you, I guess, have access or you pray um, or meditate on, you know, um, being in touch with your spiritual covering to kind of protect you so you don't, 
you know, act wrong or start to, you know, let the... Succumb. Yeah, things like take over. Can you touch a little bit on a spiritual covering? What you, what you, you know, articulate like That's that. what, you're doing it. Okay. You're talking about it. So... We don't have to make it, um, we don't have to over-mystify. People or, want that. That is a fruit, that is a, 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 when you know about that or you seek it or you want it, that's the Holy Spirit swirling that in you that like you are under that, I guess, right? Because you wouldn't even care about it or want it. You would be ignorant or uh, agnostic. Like I, I want spiritual covering. Of course, we all do. I mean, that is the grand metaphor of the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell into sin and they discovered that they were what? Right. And what God did was come along and cover them. The fig leaves were inadequate. So he covered them with coats of skin. Those coats of skin pointed to the sufferings of Christ. It affirmed Christ's righteousness. The garments that cover you and me is the righteousness of Christ by his spirit. It's called the spirit of righteousness. That's our covering. You and I have the spirit of righteousness. God covers us with his spirit. That covering then protects us and shields us and insulates us from total corruption. And this is why in the world, you and I can have peace. That's John 16, 33, right? Peace I leave with you, not as the world give I unto you, but my peace I give to you. He says, in the world, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So there is a peace in terms of the covering that God gives us that actually sustains us in the difficulty. And that can be a process, too, because that peace, again, is emerging from that righteousness, which means we don't have a condemnation or a justified guilt that whenever we are in trouble, difficulties, challenges, we don't ipso facto say that God is against us. He's not. He may be working in us. He may be dealing with us. He may be chastising us. That might be the case, but God is not against us and God has not left us, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you can also embrace the righteousness of God as you're covering by his spirit, i.e. the promises of God. So because this is going to be deeply a constant faith cultivating thing by which you are assured that God is present with you, right? You and I are believing God. We're trusting God. We're leaning into his promises. What does that mean? You and I are covered by God's promises. Those promises are sustained in us by his spirit. We then walk in those promises. Even when we fall, even when we have difficulty, we are confident that God will raise us up. We've been through all those verses. There are so many, are they not? All things work together for good. That is a major umbrella of covering that immediately puts us in the framework of knowing that no matter how bad it gets, we are not uncovered, but covered by God's spirit. And faith again is that telltale token that we are covered because we are in spite of all the difficulty, still believing God, still trusting God. You can read it for yourself. Isaiah chapter 30, Israel sought Egypt as their covering and for failed to seek God's spirit as their covering. 
But you and I, in Christ, we have the spirit of the living God. So the reality of Christ is constantly sustaining us in our difficulty. Does that make some sense? Right. Very good question. Could be more fully developed, but think about it like this. All of the promises of God are yes and amen to those that are in Christ. What a covering. And then what you and I need to be able to do on a practical level around the covering, and I've said this before, I I don't think I can overdo this. Your faith is always grounded in because it's born of and cultivated by promises, by the promises of God's word, okay? The euangelion, which is our salvation, is sustained by the evangelion, which is the promises of God. So you and I are constantly interfacing our God-given faith with the word of God as a grounds by which that faith is nurtured, built up, kept, secured. And we're kind of objectively watching God sustain us by his God-given faith in our life. That makes some sense, right? All right, good. Uh, The next question over here, Cindy. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Elisa. Hallelujah. Gosh, God is so wonderful. Um, I'm with Jackie. I feel like this has been a spiritual triathlon, and the consolation prize is our spiritual covering. And it wasn't too long ago that I had such a a desire and an appetite for a sinful nature. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think about that. But I've come so far that I don't, come, I don't think about it as, like, um, torturing myself or feeling tortured about it. I just, um, I, I feel like I'm going deeper and deeper um, with my spiritual sisters that are able to um, be gentle with me. Um, because I've, I've, I've done really bad since. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I've covered the gamut. And I, I, I think about that all the time. I've probably done everything that's possible to be done no, to that's offend not true. God. That's not true. Now you just, all right, keep going. What? Keep going. It's not okay. true. Okay, am I getting like cuckoo? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I did 50% then. Well. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it down. You 50%. and I can't, you, you can't even be, stop for a second. Because you, I mean, I, I definitely am seeing the joy. But that language is not informed. You have no idea. You have no idea. You, in your own perception, are sufficiently persuaded of your sinfulness, sure. You have no idea the scope of capacity of rebellion against God that any of us can engage in. The fact of the matter, there is no human being on the planet who has ever did as much sin as they possibly could do. I'm helping. That's good news. Okay. I mean, you know, if you want to be on the bad list, I mean, I think we got a wall over there of bad saints that we're starting to put pictures. You can put put Lisa up there. Really, really bad sinner before Christ. I was on the most wanted poster. (laughs) Um, But no, no. Here's the thing you're going to learn. This will help you. Um, The old you get in Christ the more you're going to learn about really how bad you really are. No, I know. But you're a baby. Well, I was pretty, I'm, I, I can, well, you're it's going to get worse, huh? You're a baby. Well, the thing is, is that like you don't know yet as much as you will know the levels and depths of deceitfulness. You're acquainted with them, you know. Very I, much I, so. Yeah, but nowhere near like you will be 10 years from now. 
I now, know okay, so when this kind of stuff happens, like you're preaching tonight, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's a trip. So. I agree. In a very it, good it, way. In a it, very and good it way. feels very personal. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's a good metaphor. I mean, you can tell my sister from the 60s. You can tell this. She's from the 60s. It's a trip. <laughs> you know, that, and it's a very good thing. We totally get it. It should be a journey. A truth is an event-driven experience. Truth is an event-driven experience. I shared this as a set of messages about eight years ago. Let me share it with you again because we forget. Truth is not merely the statements of propositions. Otherwise, God would not own truth as an intrinsic quality of his own character and being. Because he owns truth as an intrinsic quality of his own character and being, truth is itself an event driven experience. This is so. So when you and I are in the realm of truth, it's an event. It is an experience. It is impactful. It is real and can't be taken away. Do you understand what I just stated? When Jesus says, I am the way, that is hadas, the truth, Eletheia, that is an event-driven reality. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And coming to the Father, it can only be done by me. So what we are doing is exercising an event-driven reality as we contemplate God's truth. And it takes on this impactful thing that you and I have when we are not only in the community here like we're doing, because this is an act of obedience. What we're doing is an act of obedience. I don't even get why everybody don't do this. Right. But they got to they got to answer to the master for themselves, not me. They got to answer to the master for themselves. I want to be part of event driven experiences all the time. I want God to show up. I want revelations. I want epiphanies. I want impactful transformational pulls. I want to be drawn into God's reality everywhere I go. Right. And so we get to do this as an exercise on this level of koinonia because God says he specially dwells in our midst when we are exercising these things. This is true. Whether men or women read the last book of, 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 of the Old Testament, Malachi, God takes great delight in those that mention his name, that talk about him often. He counts them as jewels in his crown. Can you imagine God excited about us talking about him. He's going to do something for you when you do that. It's an event driven experience. Okay. Was the disciples uh, met with an event driven experience when Jesus said, come and follow me. Their life was changed forever. And I'm super glad for it. Right. Whoever it was that preached the gospel to you, that individual had a truth driven experience that actually replicated itself in your life and brought you up into that same journey by the spirit of the Lord. It's just really it's a reality and it's a it's a wonderful thing to know God at this level of event driven experiences because you get to actually share it with people. 
And every now and then the portal of heaven opens up to them and they get drawn into. That's what I was talking to you about on either last Friday or Tuesday. I love it when God saves somebody because they end up on the same journey with us. Right. And, and because God saved you and me, he can save others. You can know that and he can save our kids and our grandkids. And you can know that you can believe God for that. In fact, that's what you live for. You live for that. Who has the mic? I've got one more. Hold on. Uh, females for all females done. OK. Um, uh, my sister right here. And then we'll get Armando. And we'll get we'll get with Bo and we'll shut it down. Yes, always delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4 and 5. And he will give you the desires of your heart. He will fill you with his own expectations and purposes and plans. That's what God will do. That's what God will do. When we delight in him, he reciprocates. It's so true. And then you become a sign and wonder in Israel because men and women that enjoy God are wild things. You are weird things. You are strange things. These, this is not common. It is not common. You don't go around every day meeting people that enjoy the Lord. You don't. You do not. And don't let them steal your joy because they ain't got none. Share it with them. But, but please understand, covet the joy of the Lord. That's your strength. Uh, my sister. Hello, Pastor. Hey, so sis. when you were talking about Adam and Eve, um, at the point where they realized that they were naked in the garden, at that point, was the covenant kind of taken away from them? Yeah. And that's why they realized it's, that they were naked in the garden? 100% experientially, because here's how we can develop that, and I won't spend long God was their covering. That's the same thing. So the pre-fall of Adam and Eve had the privilege of the spirit of God covering them in such a profound way that they had no self-consciousness. It wasn't about them. Not until the devil came along and was able to cause them to change allegiances. And when they changed allegiances, what God said in that day, you'll die. What did he mean? Separation from God. Because death is separation. First is spiritual and then it's physical. We talk about three kinds of deaths, if you don't know. It's spiritual death, then physical death, then eternal death. All three of those are separations. Eternal death is the last day when God finally separates everybody on two sides of the equations of eternity. So in this life, we're born spiritually dead. So until God saves us, we're separated from him. And so we're not profoundly conscious of him. We don't truly care about him. We don't pursue him. We might have a peripheral knowledge of him because the law is written in our heart, but we're not passionate about God. That's because we're dead in trespasses and sins, are we not? So that deadness is a separation. This is what keeps unsaved people in the dichotomy state. They are soul and body. So in their soul essence, they can be psychological, they can be emotional, they can be rational, they can be propositional, they can be philosophical. They are not spiritual. Spiritual is when that third component, that third rail enters in, awakens you at the spiritual level, which is called quickening. 
And now the soul is brought into union with God. And that union is both a covering companionship and now a dynamic of life. Where being newborn babes in Christ, we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we pursue the God with whom we are now connected. All right. So that 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 makes you a trichotomous being. You are body, soul and spirit. That is not for the unsaved person. That is not for the unsaved person. Okay, so I understand that. That's why I asked. So I'm broadly, I'm broadly. So what happened with Adam and Eve when he recovered them? Mm -hmm. From that point on, they were back in fellowship with God with the covering of coats of skin as a temporary pattern until Jesus would come. The covering of skins was a, see, look at y'all. We got clothes on. (laughs) Do you know why we have clothes on? Because we're sinners. <laughs> is that true? Is that true, sweetie? Are we sinners? Is that true? We are not in the garden. Not even close. And some of us need more clothes on. Can I ask another question? Kind of briefly. Okay, real quick. So as as I journey through as I journey through life. There's moments where, let me see if I can explain this, where I feel spiritually drained. Yes. And there's moments that I feel spiritually connected. Yes. And I noticed that during those moments, I have to check my prayer life and I have to check whether or not I'm in his word. But I can feel the spirit um, just leaving, like draining, or I'm just low. At that point. So that is something that happens as we journey through our walk with Christ. Now, that only happens yeah. to you. <laughs> of course. Okay. And, and the thing about it is that. I just want to make sure I'm not alone on you that. You are not alone. Yeah. You are far from alone. And if you read your Bible carefully enough, you would know um, that. And again, one of the great contributors to that reality is, is King David. The Psalms let you know that we can be tossed to and fro, that we do oscillate. We do have weakness. Sometimes it is a matter of practice. At other times, it's just a matter of fact. So I want you to capture that. I want you to capture that because what our sister intimated, I don't think is always true. Do y'all want me to develop this? Because I can leave it alone. And I don't want you to be here long, but I mean, we need to learn how to navigate our walk with a with a very comprehensive understanding of what it means to walk in the spirit. And and I really want this for everyone even better than me. But the point being is that you really want to embrace all aspects of your journey to learn, to learn. You want to learn from your ebbs, your ebbs or your lows. You want to, so first of all, my sister, you were able to recognize that, affirm that in yourself. Good, I can see it. Good, I can see it. Because that's the grace of God too. Good, I can see that I'm weary. I'm worn. I'm tired, as the hymn writer puts it, Right? Now what I want to be able to do is know what are the factors that brings me to that. I don't want to presume upon those factors. Because this is the area I talked about several months ago. 
you know, I say a, I say a lot of things to you guys. Really good stuff. You know that, right? You have to capture and keep it. Because what I talk about is what I talked about a while back is making sure that you don't create a standard of righteousness that doesn't correspond with reality because you haven't properly captured the importance of that event. So even that, the ebbs and flows, is an tr- event-driven reality. It's event-driven in order to help you see what it's like to be a believer that is simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. You are not one or the other. You are both. And as both, you will have upsides and you will have downsides. That will continue and hopefully it will continue as an upscale in your journey towards glory. But you're never going to be consistently going straight up. It's going to always be this because humility is really probably the greatest teacher you and I can have relative to those intervals of growth that we're going through in our ebbs. So in our ebbs, we get to see our weakness. In our ebbs, we get to see our proneness. In our ebbs, we get to see our fallibility or maybe our uh, patterns of uh sinful behavior. I call it our idiosyncratic ways. You, you get to learn yourself more. You can learn more. You can learn about yourself in the, in the flow, in the, in that upward mobility. You really can, because you can learn as to whether or not you got the lesson when you were in the ebb. So in that flow, am I going to maintain the necessary balance in my walk with God? Or am I going to move towards a kind of presumption? I'm going to talk about that next week because of our time. But I'm going to say that the fundamental reason for which Paul gave the warnings in verses 5 through 14 is because we are presumptuous by nature. Uh, And what that means is this. We will presuppose things for our comfort that are not frequently enough substantiated to be the fact. That's called presumption. And what that's about is not having the level of integrity needed to radically make our calling and election sure, And so we find ourselves often on the fringes of uh, negligence and disobedience because of presumption. Raise your hand if you got some of that. I, I, I try not to be too complex, but I want you to get it. So presumption is this pattern of behavior that, for all intents and purposes, goes way too long without the necessary introspection and affirmation of biblical truth to justify why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm getting set up by that pattern. I'm getting set up to be disciplined because deep down inside, I know I should be checking that thing. That's why in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, now listen, there is no temptation that you are going through that is so unique that you're the only one going through it. Because that becomes a kind of justification in the normal pattern of temptations that we all go through, which will also keep you in a presumptuous state. 
This is how we collapse over into sin. Because the presumption is about, I don't have to actually take that seriously. I'm just going to keep going on in my pattern. I'll be all right. But Deuteronomy chapter eight tells us that that is drunkenness of mind. Right. So, so warnings are given to you and me so that we can stay sober and deal with things in much narrower in intervals so that we can minimize those ebbs and get back on the flow, right? But the way that flow stays more consistently um, prominent is by having a real good understanding. It's called a working knowledge of yourself. That makes sense, right? Right. One more, my sister. Um, <clears throat> you gave me something today that I, I really needed. I want it back. <laughs> I had shared with my kids my um, transformation and how I felt like it just happened in an instance where you called it the photosynthesis. Yeah, revolution epiphany. The scales falling from the eyes. I've sort of shared it with them, but not in these words. And their, their opinion was that doesn't have to be everybody's experience. And and that would be be an ignorant statement. Okay. You don't have to go to war with them on it. It just indicates that their eyes were not open. So that leads into my second question, whereas it's true. I don't know if somebody is saved or not. I can only go based on um, their, their uh, profession of faith and the fruits, right? But if I have a couple of kids that won't come to church here for me because they, you know, don't like this sermon style preaching, they don't go to church anywhere else, don't read the Bible. Not good. And maybe in parts of the world. Not not good. And they tell me that they're saved. Sure. Not good. What do I do? How do I? You just pray for them. But but do I do I respond and say, look? There's nothing to say. Okay. Let me help you right along with a thousand mothers listening to me. And maybe a thousand fathers too. This one is going to be important. You guys bear with this. Um, this is not about being indifferent. This is about being resolved to know that only God can save them. Right. So it's really important, child of God, to not overinvest emotionally in spheres and realms that are out of your jurisdiction. Right. It's important that you don't overinvest emotionally in spheres and realms that are out of your jurisdiction. It's out of your jurisdiction to save your kids. So she's not, take the mic. We're done with it forever. Thank you. It's out of, your, out of your realm to save your kids. Did y'all follow that? Of course you're going to pray for them. Of course you're going to pray. That's, that's natural, like breathing. Particularly when they act a straight fool, you're, going, you're praying. But you're not, you're not going to 
distract yourself from your own walk in sanctification and calling and maturity and equilibrium and balance with God in exchange for your kids. God's, God's not going to be impressed with you. He's not impressed with you. Jesus already died, rose again, is seated on high. Everybody's getting to the Father through the Son. My kids, your kids, my grandkids, your grandkids, our great-grandkids, they're all getting it. What I love about what I do, all this is getting recorded for my grandkids and my great-grandkids. Like 100 years ago, I said, now what was our great-grandfather talking about? You can get the CD, you can, get the, you can, get, you can download it. This is for you, great-grandson, great-granddaughter. Here's an, here's an important thing. Here's an important thing. Your faith in God must maintain a healthy vertical relationship between you and him, right, in order that your children benefit from seeing you not falling apart over them. Right. Just, just, just believe God for them, but don't get into no hocus pocus. You don't have to get into hocus pocus. Every now and then you mothers are going to go through a little bit of an emotional this and that for your kids. Y'all know that. Y'all, y'all women. That's what women do. That's why women shouldn't be president. I'm kidding. Um, but don't overinvest emotions because it will be a substitute for trusting God. Do you know how to give your kids to God? Okay. Yeah, we just give them to them. All right, Lord, these are yours. You gave them to them. I'm giving them back. I want them saved. Whatever you want me to do to help them find, but don't let me get in the way. Who has the mic? Armando. I know that's going to be a little challenging for you because you've been doing that for so long, but may God give you grace. Um, Pastor, I got to ask a very good question. Um, in this verse, I've been reading, I've been living by this verse. Um, not an opinion, but we live by James 4-2 every day. It seems as if we live with a motive and we're, we're seen as the walk, like the the walk of Christ, as I'm learning from my elders, is not, it's not an image. It's a route. It's a it's a it's a renewance of heart, a renewance of soul, a renewance of mind, a renewance of the flesh, a renewance of the um of your salvation. And I realize that we really live by James four two. So I think the question is, do you truly think that James four two is a parable, or is that a parallel? So for everybody in here, you quote it. Quote James 4, too, young man. I think about it. All right, when you... Let me, when let me you read, hold on, let me read it, because I, I, it's, it's, it's on, on my mind. I'm going to read it. So I truly wanted to explain it to you, if I could. Hold on, let me, let me go who, has, who has the other mic? Bo, go down. Can I read it for him? No. You got your own question or observation because we got to shut it down. I did that on purpose because he's talking. He's talking like he knows the verse. He's talking like he knows the verse. He he, he deep into the verse. Hold on. Armando, listen, you're deep into Armando. You're deep into the verse. You got to at least be able to quote the expression. James 4, 2. All right. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, 
so you quit on fight. You do not have because you do not ask. So what I've learned from that is that we desire things, but we cannot have it, so we kill for it. We lust after things, so we can't have those things, so we kill for it. And the more I'm realizing is that we're killing for a desire that's worldly, not a spiritual desire. We're not, we're not living for a spiritual desire. We're not living for Christ. We're living for the world. Akila. Cut him down. He like Lamont. They sound like they're on the, on the top of Mount Sinai. Cut him down. Yeah, we communicate. That's, that's, my that's, very, that's, very, that's very obvious. Um, stand by. Here's what I'm going to say about that. There's a whole lot to that passage. And it's only true in part at different times for anyone. That's not a maximal description of the believer's life at all. James is dealing with a reality among some believers in his community that are living at such levels of rebellion against the grace of God in their life that it's as it were, they are in constant want and therefore absent of that contentment that they should have and walk in waiting for the Lord to give them what they need. We are certain, according to the book of James, that we have the spirit of jealousy in us that strives to, um, to fulfill the lust of the flesh. We, we got that. But those extreme expressions in James 4, 1, 2, 3, and 4, because it goes on to speak other things, is not the common experience of the believer's life. It ought not to be because we're getting into the idea of a kind of psychopathic narcissism. That's not the believer. That's not, that's not the believer in the prominent aspects of his life. It, it cannot possibly be. Uh, J- John would say um, such person as a murderer in that state does not have eternal life abiding in him, right? So we, if, we, if we stretch out that text in a wrong way, we got to deal with other portions of scripture that militate against that. Um, when we are going through a struggle, it can emerge that we are inclined to levels of evil that amount to murder. But that's not the common pattern of our life unless we're walking in sinful tendencies, sinful tendencies that we must understand does not constitute righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. All right, so I don't take your framing as the pattern of the believer's life whatsoever. I say that that would be an anomaly on the part of a believer who is in a bad state of carnality, as was the case King David, when he killed for Bathsheba. But that was not David's pattern of life throughout the totality of his 70 years. And you and I don't have a right to make that caricature as a dominant expression. Does that make some sense? You, you never want to do that. But, but conversely, before I let you go, we don't want to say that no such diabolical tension exists in the believer's life because it can. And for some believers, it does. And it's a huge problem, like a real huge problem. 
But that's not the common tenor. It's not the common tenor. I don't want to go in circles on that. So that I would reframe that around, are there times when the people of God are bent in such ways that they give themselves to levels of lust that amounts to killing? Absolutely. And for those who are still learning doctrine here, it is not talking about physically killing someone, but killing nevertheless. All right, we got one more before before uh, we get out of here, Bo. Okay. What you got, AJ? Go on, Bo. Anyway, um, yeah, I just questions, and maybe I, I didn't mean to take a long time, but I had three things that pop up. You, you, you had mentioned that truth is a event-driven experience. E- experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does that uh, constitute that, or can it be, can it be con- considered as with the seed to the fruit? Absolutely. The I mean, that, there's so many analogies you can right. use to justify, right? Mm-hmm. That's just one. Okay, one You're of many, own. definitely. Okay, mm-hmm. so we got that one. Um, and then, now this is a little strange, but it's not bad. It's, 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 um, it's, uh, uh, like when do you know Lamont? I don't even know Lamont. That's real. But uh, but let me let me just let's because we we don't want to burn time. But um, the fig leaves, as opposed to the um, coats the of skin, coats of skins. Does that can that be uh, with study? Uh, and I'm just asking you right now. Um, the proof, the proof in comparison with how the law can bring you 100%. to no fruit. Yeah, that's a, those are, that's a great attempt. You got it. Okay, so we got no, that one. Yeah, definitely. All right, and then here's another one, and maybe this, this is kind of more served to uh, one of the sisters and even to all of us. Uh, because, like, the knowledge of, uh, no, not the knowledge of, yeah, um, what Satan said to the woman. You know, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And if we were such a person or such individuals from time to time that can exceed into the greatest evil that our potential bodies, soul, and spirit, or our being, our host, can commit, uh, because that's not true, we cannot plumb that depth. And because God intercepts us and will bring us to that ultimate good outside of our power in the passive voice. And so we can never say, I am, I've become as wicked as I could have been, because that would kind of loan to, as a question, uh, us being as gods, knowing good and evil. Yeah, now you're answering Elisa's question. Did you right. catch that, Elisa? You caught it? Right. Very good. Even though you could restructure that so that your clauses actually can work coordinately because they were contradicting themselves. But very good. Uh, Here's a beautiful thing. This is why Jesus said, and I, I just I love this. All manner of sin shall be forgiven the sons of men. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit for God to make provision. For that proposition to be certifiably true. 
required a great deal of him taking on the enormity of our rebellion and disobedience. For God to say all manner of sin. Sinners should be running around this world on that. The level of inference at that proposition, the magnanimity of that broad uh, embrace of all kinds of hellbound sinners under that rubric is phenomenal in terms of the, the work that Christ accomplished to make that a justified promise. It also infers that human beings have never ever plumbed the depths of their rebellion and disobedience against God um, as we possibly could. With that narrow condition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, even that upon which men will perish eternally, um, it does not necess- necessarily equate what Lamont said was forbidden either. That men would perish in hell for all eternity is indeed a God-like experience. There's no doubt about that. For the second person was the one who said they have become like one of us in him bearing that wrath. But the second person came out on the other side of that eternity which means he accomplished the full drinking of the eternal wrath of God in a way in which human beings will never, ever fully exhaust. They never will know what Christ went through. They never will know. And this is, this is stupendously, it's stupendously wonderful for you and me. I'm going to close this way. You and I are objects of God's mercy at levels that we we cannot even begin to detect. Every one of us, every one of us are enormously, enormously blessed by a God who is sustaining this universe on the grounds of what his son did. Every one of us are enjoying the benefits of that delayed judgment. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is, it is enormous. And, and the Christian should definitely drink from that reality from time to time in order to know how fortunate and blessed we are. I like enormously blessed. Um, all right. I'll need somebody to help me with my board. Would you guys stand with me in prayer so we can get out of here? I want y'all all to go home safely. I want us to have a good time tomorrow. We're going to pray for folk that got to work tomorrow. But we're going to pray while we're eating barbecue and, 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 and uh, doing dominoes and, and chess and uh, jamming to some good music and beating up on pinatas. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness to your people. Thank you for an opportunity for us to have dialogos. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who ask great questions and give great insights It's so good for us to be in your presence and to drink in eternal matters like this. May your people everywhere around the world enjoy these kind of contemplations and uh, and deliberations around your word. Um, Bless our young brothers that are struggling in the way of James chapter four Two. we know it in part. um, All of us, particularly in times when the iniquity of our heels kick up really bad. Um, But may that not be the tenure of his course. 
nor ours. Give us traveling mercies, we pray now all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.